for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunting, brought to you by AllGrows.com, with your host and elk hunting coach, Joe Gilly. You want to hunt elk? They live to hunt elk. Their goal is to share with you what they have learned grinding it out for over 35 seasons, doing what they love. So come on into camp and set a spell. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunters. Welcome everybody, I'm Joe Gillia and this is our Insights Edition. We want to learn and talk about all things elk and with us today we have Lance Bernal and Lance is the game biologist, a professional guide, good friend of mine, and he's from right here at beautiful, historic Vermejo Park Ranch in our home of beautiful northern New Mexico. Lance, thanks for being here. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. This is my first official podcast. This is it, huh? Yeah. (laughs) But I'm glad to do it. Yeah, a piece of cake. I think you're going to enjoy yourself. And, you know, uh, I really wanted to have you on this show, like I told you before, because there's a lot of things that you have as a resource, not only as a game biologist, but because your connection as a hunter. So where I want to start, though, is I want to talk a little bit so that Everybody that's listening, a lot of people don't know about Vermejo Park Ranch, mm-hmm. and they really don't understand the magnitude of this. And really, you get the opportunity to do things in just a couple of years that a lot of us, man, we won't see for a decade probably. Yeah. I mean, the, I got to Vermejo here in 2015, and I mean, just the magnitude of it is is amazing. It's 550,000 acres. So, I mean, so let's, let's wrap our head around that. That's, I mean, it's almost the size of the state of Rhode Island. Island, Right. So it's, it's huge. Yeah. It's what? 920 square miles. uh, About 900 square miles. Yeah. And And Rhode Island is like 1200 square miles. Yeah. So (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, it's just there's so much country, and you, I, I like you said, you know, I get to see stuff because I am the the wildlife biologist. I get to go up in the air during our annual surveys and right. and see it from the helicopter, and and just you're just like wow. Just wow is always like the best way to put it, you and, know. And when we're talking about nine hundred and well nine hundred square miles yeah. there, all of it prime elk habitat. Yeah, I mean it's it it the ranch itself is just it goes from the plains, you know, six thousand feet in elevation all the way to above timberline, just below uh thirteen thousand feet in elevation. And we can find elk from the plains all the way up to timberline and i've seen them in different parts of the ranch just either out in my evening walks or hikes or just or just as part of my work job you know it's, it's elk are pretty that's the thing about elk is they're they're adaptive and once they find a, a spot for them they they and as long as they're comfortable there they're gonna set up set up camp there so it's right right so you get to see the whole process though you get to see them from winter range all the way through yeah i mean our management our land our management for the ranch is is land-based so we create the habitat for them and so um, we don't have the major migrations that you would see like in Mm. wyoming and montana you know where where elk and deer are traveling you know hundreds of miles just to get to winter range they'll drop down maybe 20 miles depending on the snow level but what I've seen in just like the last two years is just how they follow that snow line quite a bit. You know, um, earlier this year, you know, it's night and day from last year to this year. Last year, we had very little snow in the winter, and so they all kind of stayed up in that higher elevation, nine thousand to eleven thousand feet. Right. This year, we got hit in October, and then the snow kept falling, and we had a good snowpack, and they all got pushed down, and and so, um, but we. As a as a ranch, we just manage based on what the land can support. I mean, we're not we're very conservative in our management practices. Um, we do a lot of um, control burning. We just actually got done with a burn last week uh, down in some one of our best elk units, I would say. Um, oh, really? Yeah, and that was a, a great success. I mean, just trying to move back succession and, and create some more habitat for them. We do some logging, um, more for fire break, but I mean, right. Just in the years that I've been here, I've seen elk move into a logging area within weeks after the logging trucks are moved out. Maybe even, maybe even days. Because that opens up that it canopy. Opens, yeah. It opens up that canopy. The grass is, is growing. Right. You know, the, the forage, the fresh forage, the good forage is there. And so they're, they're setting up camp there. Kind of so, like a pseudo burn, basically. Basically, you know? yeah. And those burn, I mean, the logging is, it's for, it's for habitat improvement for uh, wildfire mitigation. So that way we don't get those large uh, catastrophic fires as much. You now, know? most people hear ranch, they think cattle, but there's no cattle on there's this ranch. There's no cattle on this ranch. So some of the history about this ranch was that um, it was part of the, the Miranda land grant. Back in the late, you know, late 1900s, William Bartlett purchased the ranch from the land grant. And he was actually the first one to bring elk back into Vermejo Park Ranch. They had been extirpated because of market hunting during the, you know, during the the settlement of the the West. Right. And and then when he purchased the ranch, he brought some elk in from Wyoming and uh, set up the elk herd here. Yellowstone, at yeah. right? The, yeah, Yellowstone. I mean, the history of Yellowstone is 
they're basically the source population for all the uh, relocation programs throughout the West. Because mm-hmm. I was the, and everywhere else, elk, elk had been extirpated basically from their native range. And so Yellowstone was the main source of, of elk um, for a lot of that early 20th century um, relocation programs and still continues today. I mean, that that's what groups like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, they, they still continue that work. You hear about it, um, moving elk from from uh, west to east. I mean, now they're having draw hunts in the east. I heard then your last episode talking about the draw results. Tennessee's yeah. doing them. <laughs> Kentucky's doing them. Kentucky you know? had like 70,000 applicants for uh, like 400 tags. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Unbelievable. I mean, yeah, so, but yeah, to get back to the ranch, you know, um, when he owned, when Bartlett owned the ranch, he, he reintroduced the elk back into the area. And then, you know, as the ranch changed owners, um, the next biggest owner, Gorley, he uh, continued the, he brought up the, the hunt program. Mm-hmm. But then he also brought in the cattle program. And right. that, that continued on until uh, through Pennzoil, who owned it in the 70s and 80s. And then when our current owner, Ted Turner, who is a great conservationist, uh, bought the ranch in 1996. His his goal, his conservation goal, was you know native species only, and so there went the cattle. We have no cattle on the ranch whatsoever, but we have bison now, which is a, a native a, you know a native grazer. So I made the mistake of saying buffalo one time. Yeah, they're bison. <laughs> they're bison. They're bison. Yes, and they are genetically pure bison, and so that's what we run on 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 our ranch. So again, this is kind of like a strain of bison herd that was taken from Yellowstone area. I believe so, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so the whole idea on Vermejo is to try to take it to what was original at a certain time. Yeah, that is it's it is actually Ted Turner's um philosophy. Philosophy right. is is to take it back to what what it was, you know, pre-Columbia type of stuff. Native species, I mean, and if you do talk to people about Vermejo Park Ranch, they're like, oh, man, it's all about the hunting. Actually, it goes beyond that. I mean, our conservation program, we just, when I got here, they were wrapping up a um, native Rio Grande cutthroat right. restoration project. So we have the headwaters of the Costilla Basin up on the western side of the, the ranch. And that was a big project. And I got to actually participate in in uh, actually reintroducing um the native cutthroats back into that. And that, that actually lineage. took taking other species out, right? Yeah. I mean, when it was, uh, you know, the previous owners had actually stocked them with the non-native rainbows, right. brook trout, brown trout. And, uh, and I think the, the real grand cutthroats were pretty much outcompeted by them. And then they were very limited except for like the top headwaters. And then, but you know, with Ted Turner coming along, he's like, Nope, we're going to do this. And, and a lot of work, a lot of people, a lot of meetings and, and everything, you know, just a lot of hands on the ground type of stuff. But we did it. And, right. you know, it was in my mind, that's one of those great conservation stories because of that effort. You know, Rio Grande cutthroat was is no longer considered a, a threatened or endangered species. Whereas before that, that big conservation effort, it was right. considered to be part of a part of the T&E so well I I know that even I mean that's huge on the elk side with you guys too because you do so many different studies on what on what and how much feed and different things like that I mean you know this trophy elk program or the elk program here at Vermejo 
you know, getting ready for this podcast, I was looking at back at some of the the data. I mean, back in the as far as like the early 1980s, mm-hmm. uh, the the wildlife biologist by Gary Wolf, who actually did his PhD here, based on the data collected here at Bermejo, you know, they started looking at trophy management on a different scale. Mm-hmm. I mean, looking at age class for bulls, what the land can support in terms of you know what's your ideal elk population, and so I mean, the data set that Bermejo has in terms of elk research is is probably one of the few in the world that expands decades basically and so that's kind of like one of the coolest things that i like about this well and your elk are totally free-ranging i mean they move throughout they move throughout new mexico they jump into colorado Mm -hmm. i mean they're on and off the neighbors to the south to the east um the via vidal which was actually once part of vermejo right you know they're they're all free range and so um there's no high fence here which is great and you get it's you know people who talk about vermejo and visit vermejo they're like it's kind of like visiting your own national park you know your right. own personal little national park because you could go into one portion of the ranch and not see anybody or or you know for all day and, and even like if you go to the vive Dal just south of here yeah. like you said and and which is public land and is another, you know, it's like going into Yellowstone. Yeah. You I mean, know, it's just gorgeous. And elk, you know, back and forth from here. Back, they yeah. go all the way down past Cimarron. Mm-hmm. This, what happens through conservation on Vermejo has impacted public lands tremendously. Yeah. I mean, just the, we are a, a pretty good source population for the, for the local, for the region, basically. Um, you know, we joke with some of our neighbors about where the elk are going and, you know, at hunt programs to the north in Colorado. We're like, oh, hey, yeah, we saw that, that bull yesterday <laughs> on, on us. And then what, you, you guys got him the next day or something, <laughs> vice versa. So, but I mean, it's all fun. But, you know, we, the way we, like I said, the way we manage everything is, 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 for, is for a healthy landscape. When you have that healthy landscape, everything else flourishes. You know, what does that mean for you? For me, it's, it's, it, you don't want, um, that healthy landscape. You don't want the, the overgrazing. You don't want, you know, um, the overgrazing along the riparian areas. Um, there was a time when the elk population here at Vermejo was close to 12,000 animals. Like Mm -hmm. everybody would be like, oh man, that's, that's so many animals. And you're like, you go and walk along the river and there's no willows growing. And and so they're know, basically eating themselves out of a home. Yeah, basically. And you heard about that in Yellowstone um, prior to the the wolf introduction. Well, um, it hasn't. You know, there can always be there. There can be too many elk. Sometimes there can be too many animals. And so um, we don't. We manage. We have the capability to manage our own our own elk numbers as best as possible. So riparian is a word that I never had heard till I met you. Uh-huh. So can you tell people what that is? So the riparian area is basically the area along a stream. It's that you know the if you're going along a stream, it's it's the the growth that goes that occurs right along the stream bed basically, and those happen to be very nutritious plants for for elk um, willows alders that type of stuff you know they they seek it out um but sometimes they and they don't 
when there's too many elk, they can munch them down to nothing. Right. And so basically that affects the fish, right? Yeah, that affects the fish. That affects the the temperature of the water. You know, with with no cover, the water gets gets hotter. It's not the right environment for the native cutthroats or even just trout in general. And so you have a chain effect. And then, but uh, like I like we they've been doing when prior to when I got here they decided we need to reduce our elk herd and so we they've reduced it back down to a more stable number um you know I we believe that we probably can support healthy herd of about 7000 to 8000 animals right and I think we've we've accomplished that based on our population model which is what we use to um to estimate how many to estimate our our harvest right you know how many animals are we going to harvest this year? And we're very conservative in our harvest. So um, really trying to be great stewards of the land. Exactly. And, you know, that's just following through what Ted Turner wants, basically. And that's what I mean, you know, when I ask you what that means to you. Uh, I imagine that really fulfills you and your job role. Mm-hmm. So tell me about uh, a little bit about your, your background and your journey it's pretty funny actually so i'm from uh sandia pueblo which is a a little native community there north of albuquerque grew up there and um it's it's always funny when i try and think back it's like somewhere in my life i've always been associated with different places that i've gone um so after i graduated high school i went to colorado state graduated with uh a bachelor's degree in wildlife biology came back to new mexico and actually worked at another great elk country area i worked at the vias caldera for three years oh wow which is uh, if you anybody's been there you know oh, no. that's that's like the prime public Unbelievable. Land. yeah i mean i got to run around there for for a couple of years oh that's a gift and then um so that's kind of where my elk work began um then while i was there i actually got accepted into the master's program um at Texas Tech and completed that and then came back to New Mexico again, um, was married, had my daughter, two first two daughters, and then uh, um, working as a consultant. And the funny thing is when I was a graduate student, I actually came to Vermejo because I wanted to collaborate because I knew they had some data that I could possibly use for my graduate study. Mm-hmm. Saw what it, I didn't even see one, I mean, like, point zero percent i oh, just saw yeah, yeah. Of, of the ranch i mean i just saw it coming tip in of the iceberg just saw it coming in saw the the lodge area how they ran their program and right. i was like wow this is pretty neat and then you know then then went back finished my degree uh, my master's degree went to albuquerque was working there and then it just the the position opened up and here i came and so i was like you know i'm, I'm going back to vermejo and then you know, once you get here, you're like, oh, yeah, this is pretty neat. And then you're just like, you start exploring a little bit more. Right, and you're just right. like, okay, how far am I going? How far? And it just gets wider and wider and just like, wow, this right. place is pretty neat. And it, and it contains all the different zones. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it starts at 6,000 feet on the short grass prairie and it goes all the way to the alpine, you know, tundra up above timberline. So you basically it's, almost get to, you know, you get to work on a on an elk preserve that controls its its, you know, through stewardship. Yeah. So mm-hmm. and, and that's pretty incredible. And yeah. So what I think is cool though is you have a dual role here. You're not only a game biologist, but you're a guide as well. 
Yeah, um, you know, it, that was a, another thing that drew me to the job. I was like, I remember it was my second day of work here and the hunt coordinator and and uh, and guide supervisor came into my office and they said, we heard you like to guide. I'm like, and they're like, and I was telling them, yeah. I was like, do you want a guide? Yeah. It was, I mean, it was like, I had always wanted, I had always wanted to be a guide. Uh-huh. And, you know, it was my fallback plan. I was actually... Prior to getting this job, I was going through the process of getting my own outfitter license so that way I could start guiding in, in the on public land type style. But um, this I, this one opened up and I jumped at it. So so hunting is basically a passion of yours as well. It is, um, and I gotta thank my dad for that. Basically, I mean he was the one who took the time, took me out, um, you know, got me involved in the outdoors and. That's kind of why I wanted to become a biologist was, is like, okay, I enjoy hunting these animals so much. Right. I might as well learn how to take care of them. And so. There you go. And, and make sure that there's plenty around. So you know, I think that's huge because a lot of people, a lot of people see hunters and see hunting and in a negative light. But I'm like you, mm-hmm. you know, my father taught me to be a steward of the land, to take care of the animals that we harvest yeah. and you have this incredible respect and love for the animals that basically we seek out to kill as part of the natural order of things. Yeah. Um, it was just, I guess just the, my upbringing. My dad <clears throat> is the one who taught me this is what we do as part of our tradition. We, we hunt, we keep some for us ourselves, but we also give it away. Right. And so, you know, but at the same time, you're going to respect that animal. You're going to, you're going to, um, you know, give him prayers, give him offerings. So that way you, hopefully he comes back again and, and many more keep coming back and your luck keeps coming back. And so that's what it, that's kind of what I grew up believing and still believe to this day. So we learned dad's laws way before we learned man's laws, right? Exactly. (laughs) I mean, which is just handed down generation after generation, you know? That's that's way cool. Yeah. Uh, so, as a hunter and a game biologist and a guide here, I imagine you know with those dual roles that you probably have some insights into elk behavior that other people might not know. I mean, I'm out there. If oh, I'm in, in if I'm in the office, I as soon as I can get a chance, I'm out there just trying to to learn some more. Um, you know, listening to your previous podcast to get ready you know you talk about just going out and just sitting and being among the elk right you know and i will say that these elk are a little bit different than what you're going to experience on public land there's not that pressure that they you know there's not there's not hundreds of people running around on atvs throughout the year throughout the summer you know um yeah that's that's what i was talking about on one of the podcasts you know we have elk that what I call backcountry elk that, yeah. that don't have, uh, they don't have those occurrences with humans like what I, in those areas where they're always what I call use areas yeah. with elk. And so they react totally different. Like you said, elk mm-hmm. adapt. Yeah. You know, so even in those use areas, they do things that they're going to do, whether they're people there or not. Yeah. But here it's, it's, you get to see them so much more relaxed. They're not call yeah. shy. No, right? they're not. And, you get, I guess that's the benefit of actually working here is you get to experiment a little bit more. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you get to, I was listening to the one last night about your call sequence. It's just like, well, I'm going to try this call <laughs> sequence today, you know, this morning, see how it works. Or I'm going to try this setup. But it's, 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 
that's just the benefit of, of having a healthy elk population here that's not pressured. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the things that I like to watch, though, is, is how they progress throughout the summer, um, where the bulls are going, where, where the cows are going, how the cows are reacting. You know, right now, a lot of the cows are gonna are separated because they're gonna start dropping calves pretty soon. Right. They're looking for those sanctuary areas where they can where they feel safe enough to um to uh drop their calves and then, then they'll then they'll meet back up in their what they call nursery herds, you know, where there's a large number of cows and calves after they've been and that usually occurs after, you know, a couple of weeks after the calf and the the mother have have had time alone or something like that. So when would you say that is when they're they're calving time they're getting ready to do that, right? Yeah, so part of my research was actually doing as a master student was looking at calf elk calf mortality. Mm-hmm. Um but I mean they can drop calves basically from the first week of May all the way till the first week of July. Right. But they do uh something that's pretty unique. They actually drop their calves within that with two week period, the last week of May, first week of June. That's where a majority of your calves are going. And that I mean, that is gonna is dictated by actually the number of, of bulls that you have in your herd. Um, you know, if there's a lot a good number of mature bulls, mm-hmm. it seems like the rut is more condensed. All the animals are or all the cows are bred at, at you know, at roughly the same time. At the same and, time. And they all drop at the, roughly the same time. That just increases the chances of the calf survival. Right. It's called so, pre, it's called prey swamping basically. So they basically don't go into that second or third estrus because they're bred. Yeah. Right exactly. Yeah. Um so that's you know, that's the time of year that we're we're getting ready for. So um one of the things that we always have to advise because we are a guest ranch. We have guests of of on on site, you know, right. starting pretty much right now. Is I advise them, if and anybody that's listening, if you're out there in the forest and you see an elk calf, stay away. <laughs> you can take a picture, <laughs> but move out of there. It, it's not lost. It's part of their their hiding um, technique, their survival technique. Yeah, and I've actually come across that in public areas, yeah. and a lot of times that uh, that cow, the mom, will actually break out of the area in a whole different way they kind of go out of the area and they scent up on purpose they start urinating as they're going yeah. out to have the predator follow them away from yeah the calf and sometimes they'll get aggressive i mean i've when i was doing the the radio tagging i've had cows like oh really? charge yeah i mean <laughs> just a few feet away they're 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 stomping they're barking at you you know they're thinking you're trying to kill their calf but you know, it's for the sa- it's for the your safety and for the calf's safety right, as right. well. But then the bulls are in a totally different area. I mean, their get their antlers have dropped. They're starting to you know the green up is there. They're putting on the groceries for the fall because that's their job. You know. So what kind of areas right now at that time when the cows are dropping? What what areas are those bulls looking to stay in after they drop their horns? Um, antlers. Oh, I'm sorry. Antlers. Elk <laughs> <laughs> have antlers, not horns. <laughs> um, I seem to find them in, in upper, higher elevation meadows. Um, you know, they, in Aspen areas, uh, it seems like they like to seek out a lot of that, uh, what they call Kentucky bluegrass, just mm-hmm. the greenest that they can find. Basically, just that's the highest protein for them. So they're sanctuary areas where they can just feed on high protein yep, stuff. Exactly. But they're not down in those, uh, because the cows, the cows are getting ready to move to their nursery areas, which are going to be good grass, low areas, right? Um, they're kind of, you know, that was one of the things that I, 
I my study was is that we because of the technique that I used, mm-hmm. we concentrated on open meadows, your your basic park meadows, right. looking for for for, for, for newborn calves. But there's a percentage of cows that will go out and drop their calf in, in forested areas. It's pretty okay. interesting. But they're, you know, the meadow is just maybe a, a few hundred yards away or or maybe even half a mile away or something like that. So, so where their prime feed is that? Is that is that meadow. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody's, when you, when I think of elk hunting, I'm looking for meadows, basically, and transition zones and stuff like that. So, um so how is their nursery area going to change from the breeding area? Uh, sometimes it doesn't change at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they if they have everything that they need, they're going to s- stick around right there, you know, uh, as long as they're not pushed out and th- there's the heavy pressure for them to push out. Um, you know, I've seen in the fall where there's a rut fest going on in a, in a meadow and then you come back in the spring and it's full full of elk calves and, and, and their mothers running around the same areas. So... Sometimes they, they don't change very much. Um, you know, just where they go, seems like the bulls will go off into more secluded areas to recover from the rut, right. obviously, uh, in that later season. But, um, you know, if the feed is there, that's where they're going to go, basically. So that's where the cows are. They're, they're there that pre-rut. Uh, they're there that early season. Then during the rut, basically the bulls are coming to them in those areas? Yeah. Um, I've seen, this is pretty interesting to, that I've observed, is you see the, the younger bulls, you know, running around the cows, acting like hot stuff. And then here comes <laughs> here comes the big right. herd bull coming <laughs> through the trees, bugling, and you just see the, the younger bulls just, all right, we're done. Well, and that's that they, early, yeah, yeah. So that early season is kind of interesting because the rut takes so much out of a oh, bull. Yeah, I mean we've so part of the the data collection that we collect is is the field dress body weight, right? And we'll see bulls drop a hundred pounds in a month, right? I mean they'll start off you know on average about five seventy five in September during their archery hunt. That's, by, that's field dress. Yeah, field dress. Weight. Right. And, you know, and, and by end of October, they're 475, maybe even less. It, it's amazing that how much weight they lose. Even just even just the time period between hunts. Right. Like that, that last hunt in, that we, archery hunt we have in September to that first hunt that we have in October. Yeah. It, it, I, I actually saw elk that were close to 200 pound bulls yeah. from, yeah. you know, that, that drop. And it's so tough on them. So those, those big herd bulls, that early season when those young guys are out there and they're, and they're gathering them up, those guys are so smart because they realize how much energy, energy yeah, they're going exactly. to expend. And so they just stay off on the side and let those young guys round them up for yeah. them and then wait until it's time to scent check and move in, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's pretty smart about that. <laughs> so, but, um, and then you get to observe that here. That's part of the, the cool thing about, like I said, my job is just, you get to observe it in their natural habitat. Right. I mean, you could go out, like I could go out this evening and just go watch the bulls and see how they feed or they come out and, and kind of. So in the time you spend with hunters then, what would you say, because, God, there's so many misconceptions out there, and I'm sure you hear some of those mm-hmm. from some of your hunters, like when you're out there and they're like, oh, well, we got to go in at 8 o'clock because the elk aren't moving no more. Or, I mean, there's <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff yeah. like that. What would you say are the three biggest misconceptions you hear? The biggest one is a big bull has a big bugle. Oh, yeah, and right. I, and I heard you guys talk about that, and I'm like... I've heard, and we'll both agree that 
I've we hear we've heard bulls that don't sound like bulls, you know. Right. And I mean that's part of the fun. If you're going to be archery hunting during the rut or rifle hunting during the rut, mm-hmm. you want to chase that bugle. I mean that that's that's the biggest one is is that you know not all big bulls sound like big bulls because they're they're going at it sometimes and sometimes they're real quiet. I had one so in 2017 I actually got lucky and drew the vibe of a doll and I had a bull. And we were just, I mean, he was barely sounding off. He was so, he he was so sly at how he let himself know where he was that he actually moved in on me and I wasn't even expecting it. Right. And once he came out, he was three four. he was a 340 bull all day. And I was like, all I saw was the antlers come out and before, I wasn't even ready because well, he you, had just thrown that. You know, you have some have that beautiful musical tone. Yeah. You have the screamers. You have some that just sound like a, a cow man out there yeah. just all beat up. Yeah. So that's that's the number one. Uh, number two, elk aren't active in the middle of the day. <laughs> that's, the, that's not true. So I'm, set us straight. <laughs> I mean, if you're hunting elk in the rut, I'm out there all day. I'm out there... And actually, one of my favorite techniques is actually to to follow an elk to his bed, and um, and this work has worked a couple of times. Is actually play the wind right, follow him up, and actually get above him, mm-hmm. and then call him up even more. Because what I've experienced is that yeah, an, a bull elk he'll he'll bugle down at you, mm-hmm. but he has the higher ground, so he can see you coming. Right. So, um, you know, he wants to see the cow come to him. He's like, I'm up here. I'm, you know, I'm man of the house. You come to me type of deal. Whereas if you go above them, you know, and do it quietly and, and play the wind right and get above them about, you know, 100 yards or so, you can bring them out of their bed in the middle of the day. I mean, I've killed my one of my hunters killed his largest bull, which was just shy of 360 at 11 o'clock in the afternoon. Right. Like, yeah. And yeah. it's like, you know, guys are, are rushing in for lunch and, and stuff like that. I'm like, <laughs> no, just stay out there. Because you never, and sometimes, you know, the the bull will get active in the middle of the day. He'll go on, he'll check his cows. And, and you're, if you're not there, you know, how are you going to get that? It's like you said earlier, you know, you got to create those opportunities. Right. And so the more opportunities you create for yourself, the more chances you are of being successful. Well, I've even thought about it. I, and, I, you know, as years went and I turkey hunted that bulls were a lot like gobblers in that sometimes the best time to call in a gobbler is once the hens have gone and set. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. And, and they know where the hens are. Mm-hmm. Like the bull knows where the cows are. Yeah. And that's the point that you can actually pull them off. Yeah. And then, I mean... Uh, that's also the the time that they can actually rejuvenate themselves because mm-hmm. they're so busy chasing the the satellites away, you know, while the the herd is in the in the meadow. That once they they feel comfortable, they're gonna leave their cows to go get water or go get food. You know, they'll feed, they'll stand up and feed a little bit. And so, I mean, if you're right there and you're and you can you can draw them away, like you said, then you can. You just created that's those wallow times. That's when they're yeah, exactly if it's hot, they're good. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a wallow in there. If you've done your preseason scouting and you've got some wallows picked out, you know, you can go and sit that wallow in the middle of the day because they're, they're going to try and cool off. So when you are calling that bull, when you follow them to the bed and you're calling them off, are you being a lover? Or are you being a fighter when you're calling? Uh, usually a lover. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll do a cow call mostly 
just that lonely as long as they're they're vocal you know or i i usually do that longish just whine is is my favorite call to use for them but um you know i if i'm moving with them i'm doing real light bugles to just make sure i know where their position is you know and because he'll respond to that bugle and then once i know that i'm above him then then i'll sneak it around and then start calling so it's like you said paint that story right you're just you're just that lonely you're just that lonely satellite at first and then you move into position and he's like oh wait there's a cow that's getting away so i'm gonna come and get her right exactly you know, the the story that you're telling you know in fact those imagine the bugles that you're doing are are basic uh what most people would call location bugle it's yeah. not like a, a real strong aggressive type yeah. bugle and then um trying to think of the third one in just just how tough those animals really are i mean i mean they are especially during the rut i mean you can imagine us when we're 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 in that fire fly mode we're pumped full of adrenaline they're the same way Mm -hmm. they're they're either going to fight you or and they're not i've seen bulls take hits you know from a 300 wood mag and it takes four or five shots and so and once that adrenaline gets pumping when, yeah exactly mm-hmm. if they're coming in to fight they're not going to feel anything i mean they're they're gonna they're gonna um they're gonna come and they're gonna challenge you so i mean just just how tough these animals are and and we've seen them um you know one day they're they're beat up or you stick an animal with an arrow and then the next day they're acting like they've never been hurt at right. all you know they're they're back in the fight rutting again pushing cows firing off other bulls and so just how tough these animals really are yeah because i've actually seen them live off of one long yeah and then i mean and i've seen or i've heard reports of like bulls getting stuck with one lung and they're living for you know two or three weeks right and then we find them at a water <clears throat> hole after the rut you know dead or something so. and that's a that's always the tough one you know that's as a hunter you know and we talk about ethics and due mm-hmm. diligence and things like that we also know and you know from having you're aware of so many animals are shot or hit or not retrieved yeah that you guys get to find out and see the long picture where a lot of guys will go, well, that, han- that animal's going to make it, it's going to live. Eventually, a lot of those guys do go down. Yeah. I mean, you you don't know what happens to that. It, yeah, you could stick that animal, especially if you're archery hunting, you could <clears> stick <throat> that animal and he takes off. You're tracking him, you lose blood. He's going to go and lay in a in a water hole and mm-hmm. he's going to try and plug it up with water and so that he's going to be exposed to the infection. And that's something that happens for uh, hunters all over the West. And, you know, it's always tough for us. Mm -hmm. It's always hard to take. And, you know, that's why it's so important for us to do our due diligence. And you don't go to a point where you say, well, you know, it's going to be okay. You've got to always check that out. And that's one thing that, you know, I I know you and I know Mm -hmm. what happens on this ranch, that that's a total expectation. That they actually have to hunt. If they hit an animal... If they just draw any kind of blood here, that's their animal. They have to hunt that the rest of the exactly. time. Exactly. We have a blood and done policy on this ranch. And um, I was actually talking to a, another individual via email, and he had a, a, an episode on YouTube, and then he took it off because they wounded the animal. Mm-hmm. And then I made a comment in email to him, and I said, you know, before I, I worked here, I never used to practice blood and done. Mm-hmm. And... um you know, because basically my dad told me, if you miss, 
I'm gonna knock it down. So there's that pressure of because <laughs> uh, we always hunted together, and and so we made good shots. And and once we hit an animal, we stuck with that animal. So that never crossed my mind. But once I got here and saw that blood and done policy, I started implementing that on my own personal hunts. Right. And I was like, you know, that that's right. It's a, we owe that service to that animal. We don't know what it's going to happen. We had that opportunity. It was our fault that we messed up. Mm-hmm. And some people don't see that. They see it as, oh, well, we're not professionals. No, you're not. You know, they see the guys on TV make the shots all the time. Right. But hopefully those guys, when they don't make those shots, they actually, um, you know, make that bad shot. They're going to follow up, follow up with that animal. And guys figure that, oh, yeah, it's, it's a brisket shot or I mean, yeah, we could try and see where the actual arrow hit, but we don't know if it clipped a lung or nothing right. or anything, you know. Right. So we we implement that blood and done policy. Yeah, and you know that's something that every person their their ethics and how they treat that that's something that they have to really search inside themselves about. Yeah. And I can never tell another person, you know, I have a certain way that I feel about stuff. Yeah. And I, I don't ask other people to do that, but I think that's something that people ought to really think about is, and we talk about taking a responsible, ethical, you know, doing the best we can with yeah. everything we can to prep ourselves so we make the quickest, cleanest kill as possible. Exactly. Sometimes the best shot is a no shot at all. Yeah. And, this, and the second best shot is a missed shot. There you go. I mean, because at least you know, I mean, you looked for your arrow or you looked for blood and you're like, yeah, like you know, I cleanly missed that animal. I feel confident, but again, that's a ju- that's something that you have to deal that's with right. on yourself. You know, you got to be willing to accept the fact that if you hit that animal, that's the animal I'm gonna right. take. Let me let me talk to Lance as a hunter then. Uh, gun or bow? Well, I I grew up hunting with a rifle. Um, I've probably, and I enjoyed it. I still enjoy it. Um, but right now I'm, I mostly concentrate on archery. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, it took me, so I think I killed my last bull with a rifle, um, in 2013. Mm-hmm. And then it took me five years. Yeah. Roughly five years before I killed my first bull. Oh, so bull. the one you got on the Via last year, huh? In 2017 was my first bull with a bull. So this guy draws the coveted Vividal <laughs> public land license yep. and uh, and went and got it done. Yeah, so that was... But like we talked about, I had, I knew what that tag was about. Mm-hmm. It was it was once in a life. It's once in a lifetime. And so I prepared for that, both physically and mentally. Um and so I, I was ready. I practiced. So the, the, the funny thing about that is in the last two bulls, actually. So in 2017, my last shot at a 3D target was pretty much the same shot that I took at my bull. And right. that was uh, on, at, at the 3D target was 60 yards quartering away. And then I ended up shooting my bull at 50 yards quartering away. Quartering away. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's part of getting, you know, being prepared and putting yourself in possible situations. You can't be prepared for everything, but if you're prepared for most situations, you know. So your your preparedness, you know, and you talk about it because, you know, I watch you. You stay in good shape. You shoot a lot. You do all the things to try to make yourself successful, be able to have those opportunities and finish those opportunities. Yeah. 
um so like and then uh you know in 2018 last year i drew the the next unit over the next hunt area over and my last shot at the range was 75 yards and some people are going to question my ethics but i i felt comfortable in my in my shooting ability was my last shot with the broadhead at a 3d target was 75 yards mm -hmm. i shot my elk at 80 yards and so i mean but i felt comfortable you know when i first started archery hunting uh -huh. i had that same shot at a, at a five by five right i would not have taken that shot right but i had developed that that confidence basically um through just practicing shooting all the time well like i said everybody's got to come to their own and yeah. and it's about whether or not you question your ethics like you said if you're comfortable you're solid and you're making mm -hmm. that shot you're the one that has to deal with that exactly and you know and it was a little back and i i hit the liver but luckily we were able to recover that animal we stayed on that animal for six hours and you know uh i know that uh i'm gonna jump in before we go any further because you uh you do something with mountain tough fitness yeah so um that their program is a is a workout program you can do it at home at your home gym i do mine at my home gym or you can go to your your local gym um i've been with them for i was on their beta test program last year they oh, yeah. do a preseason backcountry mm -hmm. hunt program and so it it will test you, but it will ma it will make you ready for the backcountry if you're going backcountry hunting, because it's it's physical, but it's also mental preparation. Some of those workouts are brutal. I mean, but that's just you're gonna face that in the mountain. You're gonna be on if you're going on a backpack hunt, you know, and it's gonna be a seven day hunt. Right. If you crumble at day three, right, are you gonna get it done? Yeah. And no, so, and that's and so. you've listened to some of our podcasts, and one of them that when we talk about elk hunting confidence, a big one is on physical preparation. Exactly. Um, and that's what this program does. And those guys are based out of Bozeman, Montana. They're hardcore backcountry hunters. Um, and In they fact, actually, you have a promo code, right? I do. Um, they were for, they were gracious enough to give uh, this promo code. It's called Always Ready, and that's their motto: is to be always ready. And um, it. It's not just for hunting. It's for, you know, if you want to be ready for your kids, go out and, and play with your kids. Because, you, you know, as we, as we get older, we, it, it gets a little harder to, to get out there, <laughs> be active. But right. they want that mindset of always being ready for whatever life is, brings that to you physically and mentally. And so they, um, they were gracious enough to give you 20% off their program. And, you know, some people are like, yeah, it's expensive. And I look at it as it's an investment in myself. If I'm if I'm not healthy, I can't go hunting. Right. And so, you know, I haven't even looked at their program. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. um, but I do know what people are paying to go to gyms and to do things at, at places like that yeah. in some of the cities. And you know, uh, for us as elk hunters, um, there's a lot of things that you can do. Guys, you can go out and you can talk. Go find your local coaches. You know, you can talk yeah. to your track coaches, basketball coaches, mm -hmm. football coaches. But if you have a hard time getting motivated, programs like this. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's online-based, and there's, mm -hmm. it, it, there's forums. You know, you can – there's somebody who's doing the program the same time you're doing it. And they'll – you know, you post your time or your weights or whatever you did for that workout. Right. And they'll be like, hey, man, that great job. You know, I, I struggled a little bit, but then I saw you do it. And so that pushed me to finish the workout or something like that. Right. And, you know, it – 
uh, I got to work out with two of those coaches in, in Reno this year. Oh, cool. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> that's where <laughs> I, huh? I want to be this year. <laughs> and so, I mean, Dustin and Alex, Ara and, and Jimmy, the, those are they're great guys. Um, you know, they they supported me. I got lucky and actually talk about being always ready. Um, I was fortunate enough and lucky enough to actually go on a desert bighorn sheep. And I had six weeks to get ready. Wow. But I had already been doing their program for for six weeks prior to that. So basically, I just finished the program out, and I was out hunting. So, and, so, and man, what a hunt you had, huh? Yeah. Oh, man. It was, it was hunt of a lifetime for sure. I mean, that's... I saw the picture. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful. Yeah. We were... And talk about mental toughness. We were on day seven of a 10-day hunt. Oh, wow. And so, I mean, we were we were on that... that you know, the last stretch of what we were going to be out there for. And it was truly a backpack hunt. And so, I mean, but I was lucky enough to get it done. So that's another, you know, I, I saw your Instagram where you were like, I don't know why these guys want to talk to me. And, and I think I want to tell you the reason that I wanted to talk to you is that I have a real strong spiritual connection when I hunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's things that, uh, that I do and that I feel and, and I, I always observe other hunters and listen to what other people have to say. And, and I heard something that, uh, that, that you do even with your hunters that you're guiding, but uh, as yourself, that you have that spiritual connection when you hunt. Yeah. I mean, it, it was just something that it was what I was taught growing up. You know, this is how you pay respect to your animal after you've taken it. Um, so I, before, when I first started guiding, I was embarrassed. I was, mm-hmm. I was embarrassed, but then my luck started to run out. And like I wasn't being successful. And I, right away I attributed to that, well, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. And so I said, and I, you know, so then I went back to starting to do it again. And luckily the luck came back to me. So, and so you were embarrassed to do what? To do what our offering, my offering mm-hmm. to that animal, you so know, your way of honoring the animal. Yeah. The way of sending them off, you know, mm-hmm. making sure that they, they get sent off in the right way at thanking them for their, their life. They're out, you know, the, what they're going to do for, for us, you know, provide meat for, for this person and stuff like that. But, and then, um, you know, just making sure that they, they're treated with respect basically. And then I, just decided and then I said you know what I'm gonna do it and if they question me um I'll tell them this is for the animal you know and a lot of people it kind of slows down the moment Mm -hmm. if you really think about it if you if you take that moment to thank the animal through prayer or or anything um you know you you slow down and you really feel that and observe that moment that you've taken a creature's life right and hopefully you know hunters respect that you know it's not just about killing that animal to put it on the wall that's awesome it's it's more of you know this animal is going to feed you know my friends my family you know and and the the antlers on the wall the trophy on the wall is just it's just a byproduct of that that's awesome that i never really thought about it like that until you said it but to slow down the moment to really soak that moment in to understand to comprehend to pay tribute pay honor yeah and uh it, it it takes it way beyond um, those five or ten seconds of letting that arrow go or pulling that trigger. Yeah, exactly. And you know, you if you're lucky enough to see that animal fall in front of you, 
you know you've you've seen that life leave that animal Mm -hmm. and so you owe it to that animal to make sure that you know that's just how i feel you owe it to that animal to make sure that he's paid that that respect and stuff like that yeah i think that uh it's something that hunters don't talk about a lot but when you're with an animal on their last last breath Mm -hmm. it's it's not an easy moment but it's a moment that that animal deserves that's how i feel Mm -hmm. and uh you're not worth your salt if if you're not able to understand that and be there because you're a part of that act it is part of that whole natural order that's happening yeah i mean i just um you know we all have superstitions basically you know we're athletes i mean i was a baseball player and we're you know baseball players competitive competitive (laughs) but you know you can call it a superstition you can call it a a, you know a ritual or whatever i mean it's just something that i do and and i'm going to continue to do it and my and i i show that to my daughters who are you know five or seven five and almost two and they try and and try i try and teach them that yeah daddy hunts he kills a lot of animals but he's he's also you know he's not just killing them to killing them he's he's killing them so that way we can eat and 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 uh you know feed the family that type of stuff well like i said to me that act is one of the most humbling and noble acts of nature and it and I and I applaud you for paying that kind of homage. That was the reason that oh. you're in that chair. <laughs> uh, I, you know, some of the things that we've heard already, some of your expertise and things that you've talked about, and uh, had just been awesome for people to hear because they're hearing it from somebody. I always say I'm not a scientist. You are. <laughs> so they yeah, get, they, I mean, they get so to hear the data. Yeah, I mean, you can get caught up in in uh, in the data and stuff like that. But if you're a hunter, you're you're a scientist. Because you're, you're learning every day. every day, every time you're out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm learning something new every time that I go out there. And so, and that's part of the fun part of being a hunter is if you don't learn, you're not going to adapt and well, you're not going to be successful. I think we've already hit on it. But if, if you had to, if you were telling your daughters or you were telling uh, one of your nephews or something, what it meant to be a responsible and ethical hunter, what, what do you tell those people? I always tell them to... Um, I guess when it comes to that moment of actually killing that animal, we're going to get as close as possible. And, and, you know, you're going to try and see that animal up, up close. So that way you can see what it, what it's about. You know, it's not, it's not about the shot. It's about getting connected with that animal, you know, and just being out there with those animals as, as, as much as possible, I guess is probably what I would try and teach them. Um, you know, and, and just the, just the process of, you know, trying to teach them, okay, at this moment, this is what we're going to try and do. It's not always going to work because, mm-hmm. you know, when, you know, <laughs> way too many variables, Yeah, way too many variables, <laughs> you know, one cow could be looking when you didn't see her sure. and, and there that goes off the herd. So, you know, it's just, it's just trying to hopefully open their eyes and, and get them to observe everything. Right. At that moment. But there are things that we can't control. We can't control how we prepare. We can't control getting in shape. We can control practicing. We can control learning as much about that animal as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the things that 
that we were able to control and so right what we can control increases our odds and and opportunities and and so and actually pays homage and honor to the hunt that's how you know that's just me i i just feel like if you know if you're going to do this if you're really going to honor the spirit of the hunt you're going to do everything you can to prep and be ready for that Mm -hmm. you know that part of it i mean if you think about it i mean wouldn't you on your last breath or on your way out wouldn't you want somebody to say yeah i knew this guy he was a great guy you know send him <laughs> right? off on the right way you there know. you go you are just you know way cool you. yeah i mean that the, it's they are they are in that respect just as much as we do way cool so, so if you if you could give uh any pieces of advice or tips to elk hunters do you have any um yeah create create don't be afraid to create opportunities there I mean, you. go elk hunting as much as possible. I mean, you're, you know, if, even if that's part of that mountain tough stuff is, is what if you don't draw that tag, but your buddy draws that tag, mm-hmm. right? You want to be ready for him <clears throat> in case he, you know, you can go with him or call for them, you know, hopefully pack out that, that animal for them. That way you're ready. So go, go out and create opportunities um, look for ways to just get out in, in the elk woods. I mean, whether it's with friends or, you know, go to over-the-counter states. I mean, I've hunted out of New Mexico a few times, mostly for deer, but I've done Colorado once, and that was a learning experience because that's a whole different style of hunting. Right. You know, you, you got a lot more competition um, sure. in terms of hunters. The elk are a lot more skittish and so you know yeah you ought to come down to my country (laughs) (laughs) yeah but you know it's interesting because it it's adaption it's it's adapting because in the ways that the elk here respond because of the the lack of pressure there's a way that the elk respond because an overload of pressure too and sometimes it's not the way you think it is so Mm -hmm. it's just it's just learning, like you said, being out there with the animals yeah. and learning about it and and trying to do that. You know, you were talking about getting out there. Two years ago, three of my Elk Bros buddies uh, from Texas uh-huh. didn't draw in New Mexico. We're having the hurricane. That's when that big hurricane oh, yeah. hit and yeah. flooded all of Houston. Mm-hmm. And, and they actually lived right there. They were seven foot underwater. Jeez. Sending me... Um, pictures of how they are because they didn't draw elk tags they went and got bear tag turkey tag and asked if they could come to elk camp man they were like we just want to be in elk camp yeah. you know so they went through a hurricane got everything ready and <laughs> drove all the way to new mexico to hunt a bear or hunt yeah. a turkey yeah. and, and just to be in elk camp because like you said it's just that yeah, experience I mean, you're i mean if you're out there hunting a bear or hunting a turkey you're going to run an elk sure you know and so you, you take that moment to observe what that what the elk is doing or you're hunting a deer, you know, you're going to run across different animals. So then you just take that as an opportunity to, to learn what these animals are doing in their natural habitat. So, I mean, it, the other one that I would, other elk tip is get something that you're comfortable with, whether it's a, a bow or right. or a rifle. Um, you hear, and I've seen guys, and I've had hunters where, oh, man, I got to draw 70 pounds to to Mm -hmm. kill an elk right no you don't 60 pounds is is plenty but be sure you have the right arrow you've practiced enough because you got to you know you you, we both know those those times when you've got to hold a little bit longer than than you expect to so be just be sure you're proficient with your equipment a rifle you know 
I don't let hunters take a shot over 300 yards. I don't care if they can hit a thousand yards with a rifle. With a right? rifle, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, that, that's part of the hunt is getting close as right. close as possible. So I don't. I 300 yards, maybe 350 if I feel confident. That's one of the the processes that we do here is that every rifle has to go out, or every rifle hunter has to go and and, and shoot and shoot before we take them out. And same mm-hmm. thing with the archery hunter. So. Um, you know, just just be proficient with your equipment. And what's funny is uh, you're up here at what's what's the altitude here, Vermejo? Uh, right now we're at about seventy eight hundred feet. And a lot of those guys come from almost negative sometimes. Yeah, and, and they think they're right on with their guns, and they come up here and they find out they're a few inches off. Yeah, and that's going to make a big difference, especially if you're shooting longer ranges. Right. So, um, you know, my standard is somebody who can shoot a three hundred with a 180 grain bullet is mm-hmm. probably is what the ranch recommends but i've seen people it's all about shot placement you know a seven millimeter with a 165 grain bullet will do the same thing mm-hmm. as long as they're comfortable with that rifle right you know um i had that same situation when i went to mexico i was like i don't want to use somebody else's rifle i'm comfortable with my rifle i used a 270 with a 130 grain bullet and Got I it just done. and just felt comfortable because you were familiar with it. You were confident, yeah, and exactly. And that's a big thing in this whole series that we've been talking about. This confidence series is that it's so important to know your equipment, mm-hmm. be familiar with it. Yeah, and then um, don't be afraid to call. Sometimes, sometimes you have to be aggressive and call. I know I change tactics depending if I'm um, what time of the season. Mm-hmm. I mean, last year, <laughs> early archery season. I mean, I couldn't get a bull to come into a cow call, but I could call him in with a bugle. Right. Be very aggressive, you know, raking the tree and stuff like that. That was the only way I was getting responses from mature bulls. A week later, the bulls were running away from all the bugles, but they were coming to the cow calls. Right. So just be able to, to adapt your techniques, basically. Be flexible. I mean, be willing to stay out all day is, is probably another tip is just be willing to stay out all day. with. The, with yeah, and that's what I said. If, there, if the story you're telling with your calls isn't working, tell a different story. Yeah, exactly. You know, try to find out what, you know, and like you said, observe the elk, listen to the elk, you know, find out what they're doing and then adapt to it. Yeah. I mean... You know, people are like, well, I can't go out all the time. You know, I'm pretty fortunate where where I work and live. But, you know, if you go on a family vacation to mm-hmm. Estes Park where the elk are in the middle of the town, <laughs> yeah. sit there for a while and listen to the cows yeah. talk for a while, you know. Cause, yeah. And that, I mean, they're the best teachers, you know. I think I think I said in the last podcast, me and my wife went for our anniversary to, to Washington State. And yeah. I found elk. And she's like, only you. You know, she's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what we do, yeah, right? It's that's what, what we, we do. do. Yeah. So Lance, uh, buddy, I cannot thank you enough. This has just been tremendous. It's been outstanding. And yeah. You know, uh, if we get stuff from people that, uh, hey, bring Lance back, you know, then I'm going to come shake your tree and see if you want to come back and talk sure. some more. I mean, you still got draw results to come out. Um, That's right. Hit up the Mountain Tough guys, you know, use promo code always ready. Um, they'll give you 20% off. And because you never know when you're going to draw that tag of a lifetime. Why? Why worry about, oh, well, the draw result isn't going to come out for another month. Sure. But. When they come out, you know, you're ready a month ahead or whatever, and you're, you're ready to go. Or even your buddies, you know, they, I know I've, I've had calls from, from guys, hey, can you join me on this hunt? I'm like, oh, man, I can't. I, I, I got to work, you know. Right. People, people think, like, that's the tough part about my job is 
I want to go hunting with so many people all the, yeah, yeah, all the time. Yeah, we, we need the bow season to be like two <laughs> months yeah, long. Huh? And I'm like, oh, man, I, 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 I want to go. So we're going to make something happen. So right. I'm, I'm, I'm shifting priorities from, from just being a guide to I, I really want to connect with some friends and, cool. and, and get caught up and stuff. So Awesome, man. But, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, um, hopefully. So. Maybe one time uh, we can be out in the woods together. For sure. <laughs> That'd be I awesome. Can, I can learn something from the coach for sure. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, guys, and uh, we'll see you on our next episode. that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, a mule there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv when you go out there and the fish are where you think they are any one of these casts could be the bite it's the most exciting fishing that i know right here at hogs cave Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.